And now live from Spirit Rock. <laughs> so as you might have gathered, this is the fourth se session on examination of the ethical precepts. Uh, and today we'll have our second session on speech practice, or what we can call mindful communication. Um, and it's been particularly important to me to uh, look at our ethical practice uh, for a few reasons. We used to, until about a year, a little bit more than a year ago, we would have uh, monthly renewals of the ethical precepts, which we would do here typically at uh, 8 a.m. It used to be 7 a.m. and have a lot of discussion about how we were implementing the core ethical principles, uh, the core lay ethical precepts, which are uh, variants of non-harming. Uh, the, the first precept is not to kill, not to harm. The second is not to take that which is not given. The third is to be careful with sexuality. The fourth is care with speech. The fifth is care with uh, substances which have consciousness. And we would talk about issues which had arisen in our lives, ethical issues. It was often very lively, typically small. And we decided to discontinue that for a variety of reasons. But we made a commitment to bring consideration of the ethical guidelines, of ethical precepts, of ethical practice in a regular way into our Wednesday morning gatherings. And so, in part, I wanted to do that. And we, this is the fourth. Uh, and the other sessions are recorded and available on the web at dharmaseed.org. And you can hear our sessions uh, from several weeks ago. I think the first was, uh, first was in June, in late, in late June, and then uh, the last two in July. Uh, the first one was on the examination of the ethical precepts in general, and then focused on the first precept of non-harming, and how to practice. The second was, um, I think, uh, three weeks ago, and was focused on the second ethical precept of not taking that which is not given. Last week, I brought in consideration of the fourth guideline on uh, what's sometimes called right speech or wise speech, sometimes called mindful communication, in part because I had come from co-teaching a week-long retreat on mindful communication that I had finished just a few uh, days before, maybe, maybe I think a week before, and was inspired by that, and in fact had worked with a group continuing that practice just two days before. And so very much... Uh, on my mind, plus we had a lot of fun, and it's a very live, live uh, part of the ethical precepts. In fact, among the five ethical precepts, it may well be that our attention to skillful speech can be the most alive precept for us in our daily lives, because we're always talking, and we often uh, can bring more attention to our speech. Sometimes we have challenges, sometimes there are disagreements, conflicts, and so forth. And speech can be a, a wonderfully active part of our practice. Uh, so much so that uh, 
if we take speech practice seriously, many of us who complain about only having half an hour at the best for silent, mindful meditation, you know, suddenly we have room for five or ten hours of serious spiritual practice because we are talking a lot. And then if you extend it to electronic communications, it might even be 15 hours a day. Um, um, but the, the point is, it can be very alive and a wonderful practice. And generally, in talking about um, the ethical precepts, I, I have, I've used a model of three aspects of practice. The first is we use the ethical guidelines to look at our outer behavior. And so a guideline on non-harming can be instructive because we can catch ourselves when we sense that we're harming. Same thing with not taking that which is not given. That when we seem to go against the guidelines, and, and we again, we looked at uh, all sorts of more subtle ways that we might, in some ways, go against the guidelines. We may not be so, uh, we may not be so obviously going against the guideline of skillful speech, for example. And last time we looked at the four ethical guidelines for speech practice of uh, being truthful, being helpful, coming out of a kind heart, and having good timing in another way, in other ways that the speech is appropriate. And we could see that uh, we may not, in an obvious way, overtly lie, but we may exaggerate, we may omit, we may not be entirely truthful to ourselves, to others, and so forth. So the uh, teachings and the practice, the ethical practice, practice of speech, has these, uh, as it were, different levels of depth. So we work with the outer guidelines. Uh, We may look, oh, gosh, did I just exaggerate? Did I just not say something because I wanted to protect my self-image or have some other strategic aim? And then we, so we check that. The, The precept lets us look at that outer behavioral dimension. But then secondly, we also can have an inner dimension of practice with the ethical precepts so that the practice uh, of an ethical nature goes far beyond simply uh, conforming to some rules. That it goes into the inner dimension because we want to see, oh, I am not following that ethical guideline about truthfulness in a really full way. What's going on? What's my motivation here? Do I want to protect something? Do I, am I exaggerating? Am I enhancing self-image a tad with what I say? Right? Uh, and so we want to look at that, be mindful, see what's going on. And then the third dimension of practice is one that is not always followed, and, and that is to bring in the social dimension. I mentioned how that is present with the historical Buddha, that he didn't say just do not kill. He also said do not approve of others killing. And other teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh and many other teachers, and as well uh, teachers and writers in the Jewish, Christian, Islamic, Hindu traditions, have also uh, wanted to bring a social dimension into our ethical practice. That is, we could ask questions, how do I live ethically 
in my, not just in my face-to-face interactions, but in my community, in my society? How do I practice the precept of not killing if the government kills in my name? It's a challenging way to follow the precept, but it's clearly uh, part, you know, for many of us, it's clearly part of our practice. And so it can be quite challenging, you know. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, in his interpretation, for example, of the precept of killing, says, do not kill, do not let others kill. That's pretty strong, right? What does that mean for your practice? It means that it can really impel us to bring in that social dimension. And I mentioned last time that we could give interpretations of these ethical guidelines for speech of by asking, uh, is there truthfulness, not just maybe in my face-to-face behavior, but how about in my relationships? How about in my family? How about in my workplace? Is there truthfulness? What is the nature of the speech? Does that meet the guidelines? And I told the story last time of my own efforts to bring the ethical guidelines into a a workplace situation, you know, and found... um, you know, a certain key moment, a lot of receptivity to the point where I mentioned in the workplace when we would have meetings, they would have me read the four guidelines out loud and talk about them and put them on a marker board and have everyone stare at them for the whole meeting. Well, not stare at them, but uh, meaning that uh, uh, one can bring the guidelines uh, into other venues. It's not just, not just personal. We can interpret the... Uh, the uh, nature of our ethical practice, I think, in those three ways. I found that helpful. Out, outer, inner, and social. Yeah. And, and, and in that way, ethical practice can be a deeply uh, powerful and, and challenging practice, just like our meditation practice, just like our wisdom practice. And very crucial, and again, I've mentioned from time to time that in... Buddhist communities, as well as in, peop- well in, as in contexts where people have brought in meditation or mindfulness, sometimes it gets disconnected from ethics. You know, that has happened historically. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, particularly in in Asia, sometimes when Buddhism has been connected with the state. <coughs> Buddhists have not talked about ethical issues, and I've heard apologies, for example from Japanese Zen teachers for what happened in the first half of the 20th century in Japan, where Zen was sometimes used on behalf of militarism. And I've been present at apologies, you know, where, and I think we have some similar dangers now where mindfulness and meditation is being brought into secular realms, not always with an ethical connection, right? And so I think we have to be vigilant in a way uh, in in that regard. In my own teaching of mindful communication and speech practice, I've tended to, with my colleague Oren Sofer, formulate three broad areas of way, three broad areas of practicing the fourth precept, the precept on mindful communication or speech. The first is working with the ethical guidelines, which I invited people to do last week. How many of you uh, worked some with the ethical guidelines? That's great. 
And uh, you know, my encouragement is to um, see if this, uh, you know, what we do today, what we did last time, can inspire you just to remember in the morning to work with this practice and see what one discovers. Uh, and so that's one whole area of ethical practice. There's a second area, which I've sometimes taught here, of related to mindful communication, which is developing qualities of presence, mindfulness, awareness in the midst of speech. How can I be present, centered, be mindful in the present moment as I also attend outwardly? Another way to say this, how can I be mindful both inwardly and outwardly at the same time? That would be important for tracking, for example, in communication when I get triggered. How do I know what's going on inside? Because when we're on automatic, we know that whatever the mental state is internally, somewhat automatically churns out words, reactions, all sorts of things, right? And so it seems incredibly valuable to know what's going on internally when we're in the midst of action, interaction, speaking. Not easy. So I'm not going to talk about that today. <laughs> but I'm going to talk uh, more about the th- a part of the third area. The th- in, in the third area of our uh, training, maybe I'll bring in a little bit of it, okay. But, but uh, in the third area of the training, we make use of the discipline of nonviolent communication. Uh, and we connect that with mindfulness, with wisdom practice, and so forth. And uh, one of the main practices there is, which really is a development of the practice of really coming from a kind heart, is the practice of empathy, a key practice of mindful communication. And I want to focus more on that for the rest of our time here and to uh, give us some practices to do that we can work with and take home. So let me see where I am in my notes. Um, empathy is a word that, that literally means feeling into. And particularly when it was originally coined as a word, uh, it had to do, uh, M, the first part of the word means into, and the pathy part of empathy relates to pathos. Or in the, I think in the, uh, I think in the Greek, it actually had to do with suffering or passion, and particularly is used in relationship to the passion of Jesus on the cross. You know, and it, so it relates to to uh, to suffering, and the the word in English was actually developed by psychologists in the uh, first part of the 20th century to use a word that was developed originally in German psychology where they used a word that in German is einfühling, which means feeling into. And, and so this was uh, developed actually as a word to help, to help a psychologist. And it generally is related to the sense of being able to tune in to what's going on for another person. It's a very crucial capacity 
for skillful communication and for mindful communication. Like I say, I think it's an extension of the third guideline that we have from the Buddha, which is about coming with a kind heart in our communication. And interestingly, empathy is, the neuroscientists tell us, a natural capacity. It's a natural, when, the, when, the, when our brains, as it were, and our systems are working properly, we are empathic when we're not shut down for some reason. Of course, we get shut down a lot. But the, the understanding of the nervous system that particularly has developed in the last uh, 20 years is that the normal functioning of the limbic system, that second part of the three brains you know, that are talked about, uh, connects us with others. It's a very interesting finding. It basically is saying, we are not these isolated creatures, that I'm here, you're there. But the very way that the limbic system works is more like there's this field of resonance. And they use the phrase limbic resonance. There's a, there's a field of empathy when we're not contracted or startled or afraid. Right? And we tune in. This is the capacity that lets us know if there was someone who came in this hall right now who was in distress, we would pick up on that immediately. We would not, person wouldn't have to say anything. We could uh, tune in maybe by looking and even feeling there's something that's going on, which is very interesting because it, it really goes against that sense of being a separate self. So empathy is a very interesting phenomenon. There are aspects of interconnection deep interconnection built into the phenomenon of empathy, which again is a natural capacity. I think, again, I think, you know, anyone who has watched young children grow up can see the empathy getting driven out of them at times. Anyone relate to that? Can see sometimes where people are, you know, or in certain contexts, you know, we can, I've certainly witnessed it, where there's this natural empathy, but then in some kinds of development, uh, the empathy gets somewhat covered over in different ways. Anyway, we'll, we'll come back to that point. This is from uh, a book, some of you may know, called A General Theory of Love. <laughs> any, any, probably some of you have looked at that, but anyone seen that book? Uh, written about 15 years ago, influential, a group of psychologists uh, and they were the ones who coined the phrase limbic resonance, which is really caught on. This is what they say. With the effulgence of their new brain, I think effulgence, what does effulgence mean? Kind of the full, fully developed quality, something like that. I'm not sure. I haven't heard the word effulgence used for 23 years. But, okay, with the effulgence of their new brain, mammals developed a capacity we call limbic resonance a symphony of mutual exchange and internal adaptation whereby two mammals become attuned to each other's inner states. Pretty cool, right? Pretty cool. This is, uh, Jack Kornfield expresses it like this. This is from The Wise Heart. Each time we meet another human being and honor their dignity, we help those around us. Their hearts resonate with ours in exactly the same way the strings of an unplucked violin vibrate with the sounds of a violin played nearby. 
Western psychology has documented this phenomenon of mood contagion or limbic resonance. If a person filled with panic or hatred walks into a room, we feel it immediately. And unless we are very mindful, that person's negative state will begin to overtake our own. When a joyfully expressive person walks into a room, we can feel that state as well. Interesting, right? And so there's uh, that capacity. And it's also a quality that we can consciously develop. Empathy sometimes is hard to find, but it's in a sense what we uh, uh, often most want. We most want to somehow be heard, be seen, be understood, have people be in resonance with us. You know, human beings and maybe most mammals, that's what they want, right? Think of your cat or your dog. It doesn't say it in such words, but it most wants limbic resonance. Please, limbic resonance. <laughs> That's what happens when they snuggle up against your leg, right? <laughs> okay. uh, and, and very, very crucial. And so, and that capacity for empathy, for that tuning, can be a very powerful quality to connect and also to work through disconnection. And so this is a key capacity for mindful communication. So what makes empathy hard? Why aren't we just empathic all the time? It's a natural capacity of our brains. What happened? Why aren't we just naturally empathic all the time? Does anyone? Yeah, I mean, we have challenges. So yeah, let's, let's give, why don't we give, let me, let me invite you to give like a phrase about why, why aren't we empathic all the time? What makes empathy difficult? What blocks it? Please. Self-protection, right? Some fear. Fear can shut down empathy pretty quickly because, again, this is on the level of the brain. We know that where, where is, uh, what's the part of the brain that's connected with survival? It's the first one, so the so-called reptilian brain, right? And it's almost like a different part of the brain goes into action when survival is at stake, and it could, doesn't have to be physical survival, it can be a sense in a social situation of, uh, you know, am I safe here? Am I safe emotionally? Right? It can be like that. Please, another? Did you have one? What's another? Yeah, what's another way? Certain cultural attitudes and um, practices like competition and things that come from Yeah, certain cultural attitudes like maybe being a competitive, uh, having a competitive idea so that uh, I think that uh, my gain uh, means your loss, your gain means my loss, right? Why would I want to be empathic towards someone who, who I'm competing with, right? So certain social systems clearly set up certain models that can shut down empathy. You know, we've looked a lot at practices of what we call creating an other, you know, through race or class or gender or all of these means, um, almost by definition, that is shutting down empathy. Creating an other shuts down empathy. So that happens in many, many ways through certain kinds of social systems. Virtually every social system that's ever existed in history probably has ways that empathy is shut down if not, 
not totally necessarily, but it's restricted to in-groups and out-groups don't get empathy, right? Something like that. So there can be, I, I sometimes say that I've seen home movies from the Nazi concentration camps and it seems like the Nazi camp commanders were very empathic towards their children. There is just a boundary where empathy stops. That was extremely firm, right? So other, other reasons empathy gets shut down, Marty. Anger, resentment. Um, yeah. Perceived uh, injury yeah. that has been done to oneself by others or another. So anger, resentment, some way that we get polarized with another, right? We get polarized, maybe there's judgment, blame, anger, resentment, irritation, and we, uh, in a way, can not be easily empathic towards the other and often can't be easily empathic towards ourselves. And so we go into some automatic mechanism that we've developed maybe at a young age. What do I do when I feel angry? You know, and maybe I go into attack. Maybe I go into withdrawal. Maybe I go into frozenness. Right? Those are the three core strategies, right? And, and in all of those, there may be an incapacity to be empathic even towards oneself. There's a kind of shutting down, right? So the shutting down is very common. Maybe one or two more ways, yeah. Feeling that somebody else is bad or wrong. Yeah, feel, feeling, thinking that someone else is bad or wrong. So, you know, I teach on the judgmental mind a lot. The judgmental mind does not coexist with empathy. Empathy goes out the window. Just think when you've been polarized towards someone or even towards yourself, because we can judge ourselves. And how much empathy is there in self-judgment when we're harsh towards ourselves? Not much, right? And so judgment, polarization, maybe, maybe uh, two more, okay? Three more, <laughs> four more. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let's be brief because I want to get to the exercise, please. When the, when the feeling, feeling into is, is vast, like when there's a large amount of, of pain yeah. on the other side, and just thinking of when you read, uh, when people are, they can be very empathic toward an individual or a small yeah. group of people, but when it's large. Yeah, yeah, great point that uh, empathy is hard sometimes when the level of <coughs> what's happening is hard to take in. How can I be empathic towards what I read in the newspaper of horrible things happening, whatever? <clears throat> Syria, you know, Iraq, whatever, Africa, right? And uh, it's hard sometimes the scale of things, right? Sometimes the scale of things. And please, it was, in the, yeah. I was Yeah. When we come home to our families, we don't have the same empathy that we have for our patients or vice versa because we've been given so much. Right. So one thing that shuts down empathy or compassion or the heart generally is, um, um, what, what, what should we say? Um, overwhelm? Yeah, maybe a sense of overwhelm, a lack of proper opportunities for renewal, for... for um, yeah, we, we have the phrase compassion fatigue, and we could say there could be a kind of empathy fatigue where, where the, what's being asked of us in a given situation 
uh, stretches us too much, right? And that, and that, you know, where particularly with challenging emotions or difficult situations, right? So that's a great, a great addition. And so I had one here, and then one I think in the back, and then I'm going to move on. Please, uh, Adrian. Um, <clears throat> distraction, self-absorption, um, being too busy. Great. <laughs> so I think distraction, self-absorption, being too busy. Right. So. Um, I mean, it's almost like with all the data we're getting, it's sometimes hard to be empathic, right? You know, I mean, I was, how many of you get emails every day? I don't know, I get probably 20 or 30 emails a day telling me about something bad happening in the world. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, maybe I should unsubscribe <laughs> or I will yet have empathy fatigue. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, it's like, okay, you know, in some moods, it's just, okay, a heart-rending appeal. Delete. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, I, you know, I don't feel great about it, but, you know, how many of them am I going to look at? <laughs> right, so, true confessions. But how many, how many can relate to that as a, a challenge, right? So, virtually everyone, right? So, we all have those kind of situations, right? So, and we had one more, I think, in the in the back, please. Yeah. I think the last three people. Yeah, covered it pretty well. Great. Okay. So, one of the one of the uh, one of the learnings that I've had from uh, working with the discipline of nonviolent communication is actually a, a very simple and uh, uh, easy way, in a way, of practicing empathy, which can stretch us. And I want to uh, have us practice this now. And this makes use of the handout. And let me explain the handout a little bit. And I won't, I won't say so much about nonviolent communication. How many of you are familiar with it as a discipline? So about, about a third of us. And it's a discipline that's really developed for the purposes of developing uh, close connections through communication with, uh, with another, with oneself. There are a number of areas that are pointed to in this discipline, and I'm going to just mention two of them. And these are particularly important for empathy. And probably, and what I'm going to give you is actually, I think, the heart of nonviolent communication in a fairly uh, short time, in a way that you can take home and work with. And this is to practice uh, empathy by tuning into two areas. The first we could call feeling or emotion, and the second we could call needs, or it could be expressed as values, or what matters for a person. So we might be able to tune into ourselves or a person and tune in just to these two areas as a way of developing more empathy. I think we do that naturally, and probably for a lot of us, we tune in fairly naturally to the emotions. So what's distinctive here is that there is a list of a number of emotions grouped under emotions that either are there when some basic need or value is being satisfied on the one hand, 
And then we have the larger categories of feeling peaceful, loving, glad, playful, interested. And then a series of emotions that occur when our needs or basic values are not being met that fall under the categories of mad, sad, scared, tired, confused, and so forth. And the identification of an emotion is particularly important because a lot of us don't necessarily have too much uh, emotional uh, fluency. And in, in people like Daniel Goleman have written books about what he calls emotional intelligence. We may need to use mindfulness. One of the fruits uh, sometimes of mindfulness practice is actually saying, my gosh, look at this variety of emotions. It's not just uh, mad, sad, and glad. <laughs> you know, or they're, they're not just these few emotions. So this sheet is partly a way to help know some of the actual distinctive emotions and some of the subtleties of emotions which can be helpful. The other important point to make here is that uh, emotions are especially what we feel directly, especially have some grounding in the body, and they are distinguished from thoughts. That's challenging for many of us in English because we often use the word feel, I feel, we often use the phrase I feel and I think interchangeably in English. So it can be quite confusing. And we often say, I feel this, when it's actually not an emotion. An example would be, I feel manipulated. We can know what uh, someone might be talking about, and there might be, we can uh, have a sense of what the emotions might be. It might be anger, might be frustration, but feeling manipulated is actually an interpretation. It's a narrative. It's a way of framing or understanding what happened, and it it can be helpful, but it's not an emotion. And there are a lot of ways that we use English which sound like we're talking about uh, an emotion, but they're actually interpretations. So a key aspect is that feelings or emotions are, are distinguished from thinking and interpretations, even if they might be linked with interpretations. So examples would be, I feel manipulated, I feel, um, misunderstood. I feel misunderstood. What would be other examples you can think of? Unsupported. I feel unsupported, right? Is that an emotion? Mm-hmm. But we know, we know what the emotions might be, so we could translate, but we don't, they're actually not emotions. What are some other examples of that? I feel cheated. I feel cheated. <laughs> okay, again, there might be emotions connected with that phrase, but that in itself is an interpretation. And they all have the underlying uh, structure of attributing our feelings to what someone else did, typically of a blameworthy nature. <laughs> okay. So other examples of that? Huh? I feel abandoned, right? I feel abandoned. Again, it could very much relate to real emotions and difficult situation, but that way of saying it is not the report of an emotion. Uh, maybe one other example? Like you don't care. Yeah, and, what, and um, how would that be, uh, how would that sound like an emotion? Yeah, yeah or, or how, how might it be, um, 
Yeah, it, it would be, yeah, you, one might say to the other person, you don't care, and it sounds like I'm reporting my inner experience, right? And we can translate it. I could feel angry, sad, hurt, whatever. And so we, we can use language in a way which sounds like I'm just reporting my inner experience, especially in emotion, but it actually is jumping to an interpretation. This is a key aspect of this, of this training. So thanks for that example. That was, yeah. Okay. And so here we, I, we use this sheet partly to get a better sense of, of emotions. Needs or can be also understood as a sense of what matters. And again, these are actually taken to be universally um, meaningful. <coughs> the need for autonomy, connection, honesty, meaning, peace, physical well-being, play, different, different needs. And uh, this, is, this is one particular typology. So needs are taken to be something that are universal and are essentially all good we might say. They're distinguished from strategies. And some of us have some challenges with this actual word need. I, I prefer uh, using a term like values or a sense of what matters because when we use the word need, it can easily get confused with strategy. Strategy is a way to meet a need. So I may have a need for peace, which is a genuine need, and I might find peace by uh, drinking a lot or doing things which actually are harmful to myself. But my underlying need is quite valid. It's for peace. My strategy may be quite uh, problematic. I may want to have, uh, I may be the facilitator of a meeting and want us to really be efficient with our time and I might be overly controlling and actually even mean towards people who I think are wasting time in our meeting. Right? That, and my trying to control would be a strategy to bring about efficiency, which is a legitimate value. Does that make some sense? It's a very important distinction because the idea here is that virtually every human action can be understood as trying to fulfill a legitimate need. The strategies can be incredibly unskillful or inappropriate, whether it's a person or a government. Right? Government security, very legitimate need. How one goes about security through wars or whatever, not always so skillful. So that distinction, strategy and need, is very, very crucial. Okay, that's the basics. Got it? Okay, ready to move on? Okay, so here's the exercise. Um, and I'll do this with myself, and then we'll do this with, with a partner, okay? Um, I'm going to describe uh, a situation that happened uh, yesterday for myself. And I want you, as you are listening to me, to be empathic towards me. This will make me feel good. Okay? And I want you to be empathic in a very specific way. I want you to tune in as I speak. I'm going to speak for like one or two minutes. And I want you to tune in to what my emotions are. 
just maybe coming up with two or three, and I want you to tune in to what matters for me. And you can use the sheets if that, uh, the sheet, the two sides of the sheet if that's helpful. So you got it? Okay, so set your intention. I'm going to start talking. And you're going to, um, you're going to uh, tell me what, I, what my emotions are or what you, your, your best guess for my emotions and then your sense of what matters, okay? Okay, okay. so um, see, my, I have a plum tree in the front of my yard which is just incredibly productive. It, there probably are 300 plums on the tree now. And they're uh, getting to the point where they're quite tasty. And it's really, I often say, the only reason to have a house is to have fruit trees. <laughs> be able to. Anyway, and so um, like two days ago, I think, or a few days ago, a bunch of kids came by and they asked whether they could have some plums. And they were really, they were so polite, they came up and knocked on the door and they had an adult sponsor with them. And they were just so polite and they asked. They were very, very cute. And I was very pleased to say, yes, go take, take some plums. You know? And they were taking them. And then, um, you know, I, to be honest, I, I noticed that um, they were just keeping on taking the plums. I didn't tell them. I didn't say how many. I was thinking, oh, but what about other people I want to give the plums to? And so I went out and more or less said, okay, um, that sound, seems like a good amount. <laughs> a little bit awkward. Okay, cut. So, uh, what were some of the emotions that I experienced? Were your sense happiness? You can look at the sheet if you want. Huh? What? Maybe maybe something like pride. Yeah. Satisfied. Satisfied. Delighted. Huh? Yeah, a little bit of anxiety, right? Yeah, something on that towards the end of the story. Now, possessive wouldn't be an emotion. Yeah, a little bit apprehensive, yeah. Uh, maybe some surprise, right. So you got it. You, you were very empathic, and I talked about both beautiful emotions and some on the other side. Okay? And what were some of the uh, needs that were underlying or connected with some of those emotions? Nurturing. What? Nurturing. Nurturing. Generosity. Generosity, yeah. Harmony. Harmony. Community, connection, cre- connection creativity, communication. communication, yeah. Kindness. Kindness. Independence. Yeah, yeah, meeting physical needs. And what, what might be some of the needs? Now, one of the interesting, where this gets interesting is, what are some of the needs in, you know, it's nice to see where I was just offering generous. What were some of the needs where it was a little bit of that anxiety or a little bit of tension was occurring in my experience? Fairness? Huh? Something like fairness. Maybe fairness, right. Maybe some fit, great. Balance. Yeah, some kind of balance or fairness. That was, that's, that's, that's right. To be understood. What? To be understood. Under, yeah, some understanding. Exactly, right? So, so you're great. Control. Now, control would be a strategy. Oh, okay. 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 That's, that's key, right? Because we want to, uh, yeah, um, <coughs> consideration. Yeah, or some, some. Uh, I think yeah, so consideration, balance. These are these are related. So okay, so I'm I've been empathically met 
I feel quite good. Okay. Uh, okay. So um, find a partner right now and sit in physical proximity to that partner. Just one partner. So move your chair if you need to be with that person. Introduce yourself. Does anyone need a partner? Raise your hand if you need a partner. And why don't you be with this group of two? And there was a person who just went to the bathroom. If he comes back, you could grab him. Okay. What we're going to do so now, think of. Think, very, think uh, very briefly. Think of how you might talk about something in about one minute that was meaningful to you. So you, you don't want to have, you want to have something kind of like my example that you can talk about very briefly. You don't need a lot of context setting that you could just say, you know, yesterday I took a walk. I really love the heat. I saw some pretty sights. And then I came home. <laughs> yeah, expand a little bit. Uh, but, you know, about a minute, minute and a half, pretty brief, okay? Think of something that you would want to communicate that's meaningful to you. Okay? Just think silently, each person. Okay. Anyone need more time? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, decide among each other who will go first. Raise your hand if you're going first. Okay. Okay, what does going first mean? <laughs> going first means <laughs> going first means that you will speak your uh, account first, okay? And so uh, we'll do it much like we did it with me. Uh, and I'll I'll give a time, I'll time it. So what we want to do is just have about a minute, minute and a half to speak, then I'll ring a bell. Then the listener will say, "Are you feeling, or were you feel, are you were you feeling this because these are your needs?" So ask it in the form of a question, something like that, and and have a, a sense of here are the feelings. Do feelings first, and then needs or values second, and just have two or three uh, on each, just like we did here. Okay, is that clear instructions? Okay. So let's, uh, okay, let's set your intention, particularly for the listener, and then we'll, 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 uh, then we'll reverse it, okay? Ready? So set your intention, especially as a listener, as a speaker. Think of what you're going to talk about. I'll ring the bell to start in about uh, 10 seconds. Okay, tune in empathically.
Okay, so have the original speaker finish up. Now let me invite the listener to say what you sensed in terms of feelings and needs or what matters. And you can say that one, one way sometimes helpful to say this is in the form of a question. So we're, we're asking, we're not saying I really know you, but we're saying um, were you feeling this because these needs were present? Something like that. Okay, so can go ahead. Take about a, just a minute or two. Just identify two or three. Take about another 30 seconds. So finishing up. Finishing up the listener's account. And thank your partner, whatever way you'd like. And we're, we'll switch roles, okay? We'll switch roles now. So speaker becomes listener, and listener becomes speaker, okay? So let's just have a come back to silence for a moment. And let's have the... The second speaker, think of what you're going to be speaking of. Again, something brief, a minute, minute and a half. And for the listener, set the intention that you'll tune in to feelings on the one hand and needs or a sense of what matters on the other. And I'll ring the bell to start in about 10 seconds.
So finishing up the second speaker, and then we'll invite the second listener to say what you heard in terms of feelings and needs. You could ask that as a question. Were you feeling this because you needed this? Okay. So about another minute or two. Take about another 30 seconds. So finishing up, and thank your partner. Whatever way, and let's come back to the whole group just for a little while at the end. So let me uh, let me invite any reflections or comments. Uh, how many people felt? Found deeply empathic partners. Okay. <laughs> okay, very good. Any, how did, how many people, if you, if you felt uh, empathically received, how did that feel? Good. Pretty good. It meant the need for to be seen, be seen, yeah. It can be very helpful to tune in and see how that feels, because it's actually it does meet some quite a deep need, and so. Uh, other observations, questions? Yeah. 
I think of it as a, uh, it's complex because it's so socially mediated. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I tend to think of, feel, of guilt and shame as, as feelings. Yeah, maybe I can inquire into that from this, from this model. Yeah, I think it's a good question. Is disappointed somewhere? I think that's an emotion, yeah. Yeah, this isn't comprehensive. You mean it could be bigger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, so there may be emotions that are not on here. Disappointment, shame, guilt. I'll, I'll look into shame and guilt. I imagine that there's a speci- there's a, might be a special perspective there. Um, other uh, other uh, noticings about just the experience of being empathic, please. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I. It was wonderful to be seen so well and so clearly, and then yeah. when it was my turn, I'm very empathic all the time with people. But for it to get into words was really weird. For yeah. Me. And I was like, oh, what, what is this? And I was having a harder time, but it just kind of felt like really, uh, really nice and like uh, brought like a aliveness, awakeness into my body to think about like more yeah. specifically what exactly this person is feeling and their needs. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Language is is very interesting that uh, just noticing that maybe often you're empathic, but not necessarily in a verbal way. And how many can relate to that? Yeah. And and with some people, that might be felt. And maybe with some, it might not be, right? And that's where the magic of language can be so powerful. Someone there might be some who don't naturally feel the empathy, but you say one word and something happens, right? Pretty, pretty magical, powerful. Um, please. We can use the mic now. Okay. This is really, for me, this was the inner outer yeah. thing, very much feeling empathy and then looking for words on the list. Yeah. The yeah. list for me would be very useful because I, I don't think I'm a word person. Yeah, right. And so there, it there, opens more. So it's a great it's a great point that in terms of that <coughs> model of three aspects of practice, uh, outer, inner, and social. The inner would be actually cultivating that sense of empathy. The sense in, in a way, kind of almost like a, it's a kind of mindfulness of the other, but we're also training ourselves to have more differentiation, maybe more, f- whatever we call it, fluency, more uh, knowledge of variety. And it, and it can be very, very helpful. And I, I don't remember having this as part of my schooling necessarily, you know, to have great emotional literate, what's sometimes called literacy, right? Uh, and I think it's more, of the, it's more in the curriculum now. Yeah, and then I, I would think the then the outer the uh, social dimension also is important, and we talked about it before. Part of what blocks blocks uh, empathy are a lot of social constructions, and so we might deliberately be empathic by going across the usual boundaries, maybe learning about uh, people outside our usual circuit. Right? Could be even I think a big uh, books poetry. Music, film, I think, play a large role in empathy, in cultivating empathy. Right? It's interesting. Right? Please. 
and and something I read recently in, in yeah. a book I've forgotten which one that um, Westerners have more words for emotions than Eskimos have for snow. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that that we may we may have a lot of uh, words for emotions, you know, and still I think uh, uh, many of us, and I would say my conditioning was to have rather few emotional words and actually not even to necessarily be able to go to emotions. I remember having many discussions, especially with uh, women when I was younger. They would say, what are you feeling? (laughs) This may be an archetypal experience, right? (laughs) What are you feeling? And I would report... Uh, I would report something that was not emo- an emotion, right? And so you know, the, the training took years <laughs> to develop there. And maybe one or two more comments, please. Yeah. It was, this seems like it's kind of apparent, but it was kind of like to be, it's way easier to tap into what other people are feeling when you really genuinely listen to them. Yeah. I mean, I just had that experience of yeah. like, I'm not thinking of what I'm going to say next and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not doing any of those things. I'm just listening. Right. So this is really crucial. What are the conditions which maximize empathy? What are the conditions which make empathy hard? Right. And then how do we <coughs> counter the conditions which make empathy hard? You know, and I think I, think I may in the next session work with, bring, bring this practice of empathy into working with challenging situations, right? Because this is a training, and what would the, how would your capacity for empathy be if there was someone with whom you had a disagreement? You know, and you can think of specific examples. Uh, so I think that can, that's, so, and you know, this is a, a training condition, you know, being here, nothing too much is at stake, Empathy probably worked pretty well, right? Under the conditions which we named earlier, distraction, anxiety, (coughs) social constructions of one kind or another, you know, judgment, blaming, uh, the empathy will tend to fall away. You know, so maybe, and last one, Debbie? Um, Yeah. Given that, uh, what I've heard is that um, in Eastern uh, language that, that the the heart and the mind is one word, mm-hmm. right? So, so doesn't that sort of doesn't that sort of fly in the face of what we're doing here? I mean, is it how does it relate to? I really enjoy this. I think it's interesting. Yeah. But how how does it relate to, um, you know, to like the Buddha and? Um, uh, yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting question yeah. about about in many. Asian cultures, the heart and mind are understood as one. It's, it's actually a very complex question. And so, um, uh, and it's, it's an interesting one. Um, actually, there are no words which are the cognates of the word emotion in the Buddhist Asian languages, as far as I know. So, there my experience is, is that the general framing of experience is done differently. And one, I don't think one's necessarily better than the other. In other words, uh, 
the word that the Buddha used uh, for talking about thoughts and emotions was just one word. It was citta, right? And that includes fear as well as planning. It's just one word. And often there is, can be a sense that the thinking and the emotion are connected. And indeed, I think emotion is very much integrated with thinking in various ways. In other words, we get angry because we have certain thoughts. You know, we, you know I, this, this happened, I don't think that's okay. I get, I get uh, emotional. So no question that thoughts and emotions are connected. Can they also be differentiated? I think so. And I think that is done in some of the Asian context. I mean, one can isolate fear and talk about how to work with it. One can isolate anger, right? And, uh, and yet the, the general way of framing it, generally in the West, there's a, there's a threefold distinction, which is not always there, between body, emotion, and thinking. And in Asian context, it tends to be a twofold distinction between body, and thinking and emotion. And that's linked with that sense of, in the heart. And there's a lot more I could say about that. But I think that, you know, I think uh, it still can be very, very valuable to differentiate the two. And I think that is done in a lot of, a lot of context in the Asian systems, as far as I know. So again, you see it's a complex question. Yeah. Um, okay, so how to practice. Anyone up for practicing empathy? Uh, I don't come back till August 19th, so anyone, anyone, up, anyone up for practicing empathy for the next month? <laughs> okay, okay, we can come back and I'll, I'll work, I, I think I'll work with practicing empathy in challenging situations, okay? So here's how to practice. Um, just do what you just did over and over again. <laughs> okay, I, I, could, I can elaborate. Um, let's see. Um, Mostly it's to set the intention to practice empathy. Maybe in the morning, maybe twice a day. And see if you can bring empathy into very, at first, easy to moderately difficult situations. In other words, a lot of the practice can be just the habit of tuning into feelings and needs. And, and much like your comment, we will be able to access that most easily where the situations are not too challenging. So practice that you can watch, I don't know, a soap opera on television, practice empathy. Oh, that person is experiencing <laughs> you know, deep anxiety because that person seems to need you know, comfort or, you know, or whatever. You know, so practice this uh, in different settings. Set an intention during the day to practice it. It can really be wonderful. If you can, you can start to bring it into challenging situations. But don't, I would not suggest going for the most <coughs> difficult ones. Try some moderately difficult situation and just imagine what are these person's feelings, what are this person's needs. Maybe think of someone you have a difficulty with at work. What's going on? Right? And then just keep on coming with the intention and study it. See what makes empathy work. See what makes it difficult. 
And again, you can just practice it, especially where it's easy, where it flows. You can carry around the sheet with you, when you in your conversations. That's okay. <laughs> okay, and we'll do more. So thank you so much. Uh, why, don't, why don't you just set your intention on what you'll do. Let's take 30 seconds, set your intention for the next period of time. Maybe take one week at a time. Four, week, four weeks may be a lot. But set your intention at least for the next uh, few days of, set of how you'll bring this empathy practice into your life. And then we remember that we do this practice for the benefit of all beings, for ourselves, for everyone in our lives, and all others. And all beings always includes us. Very important. Okay. So, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.